0: Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Well, we thank you all for listening in on the show. Show today, our topic today is the the new definition of cancer. Uh, I know that might sound a little surprising, and, and we certainly know that few things are more frightening than, than hearing a doctor say "You have cancer." Uh, however, fewer patients may begin hearing those three shocking words: uh, a proposed change from a panel of cancer research experts may eliminate the word cancer from several commonly diagnosed conditions that are usually deemed as cancer, premalignant, precancerous. So here to talk with us today uh, about this change is Dr. Otis Brawley. He is the chief medical officer of the American Cancer Society, where he promotes cancer prevention, early detection, and quality treatment through research and education. Dr. Brawley also serves as professor of hematology, oncology, medicine and epidemiology at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, Thank you for being here, Dr. Brawley.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in on this very fascinating conversation, because I know our, uh, our, our listeners are, uh, are, I think, we're, they're on the edge of their seats uh, about what we're talking about here uh, in, in the event that they may have m- missed this news. Um, can you please, Dr. Brawley, explain to our listeners what this proposed change in the labeling of a cancer diagnosis is and who this panel is that is making this recommendation?
3: Yeah, over the last three years, a group of people brought together by the National Cancer Institute, uh, with the support of the American Cancer Society, uh, have been looking at the issue of overdiagnosis. Now, that's a a technical term. What overdiagnosis means is the person has a cancer, has something that looks like cancer under the microscope, but it is a disease that is never, in that person's lifetime, going to grow spread or harm the person. And as we have done screening and a number of things over the last 20, 30 years, we have noticed that there are a large number of people who have these small lesions that, uh, so many of them uh, being diagnosed, that we now know that there's a goodly proportion of a number of cancers, thyroid, breast, prostate, even lung cancers, that really are never going to harm the person. And the worst thing that we can do is actually tell that person they have cancer and then treat them. Now, uh, as we get into a molecular age, we're actually starting to be able to look at a diagnosed cancer. And in some diseases say, this is something that looks like cancer, but this is the kind of cancer that's never going to bother this person. Uh, And so the question is, should we be calling it cancer?
0: So, Dr. Broly, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this panel and what this uh, what the process has been to arrive at this recommendation? Are these, uh, you know, cl- clinical researchers, are they frontline oncologists, and, and, and what was sort of the, the, you know, the process to issue this new report?
3: Well, a group of people who have been brought together are, are varied in their backgrounds. Many of them are uh, clinicians uh, who treat Prostate and breast cancer, but we also have some pathologists. These are the people who normally diagnose what a biopsy is, and there's some basic scientists. And very importantly, in order to figure this problem as a real problem, uh, we actually have uh, people who are uh, uh, outcomes people, epidemiologists, who actually look at treatment outcomes.
0: And and so to drill down a little bit, is this is, it, you know is this just a uh, you know a sort of a technical update? To the definition of cancer or, or, or is this something that's going to have long-term ramifications in in patient care is this something sort of in, a, in an academic or theoretical realm or how, how does this start to sort of trickle down to the to the frontline patient experience
3: no it's already starting to trickle down to the frontline patient experience in the realm of prostate cancer for example uh, we've started to realize that a lot of men who have what's called Gleason score 5 or Gleason score six pro cancer. These are uh, prostate cancers that look very non-aggressive under the microscope and we've always said these were good prognosis prostate cancers. There's actually studies to show that very very few people are ever harmed by these cancers. If these cancers are watched and not treated. And so in prostate cancer, much of what you've heard about the discussions about should we be screening for prostate cancer, should we be treating for prostate cancer, intimately involved in this, uh, this whole discussion. And we're actually, there, there's actually been 12 papers published in the last year that basically say should we be calling Gleason score 6 prostate cancer, prostate cancer,
0: so you're talk, so you're talking you talked about prostate cancer. you talked a little bit about about uh, breast cancer. You mentioned that those are some of the uh, experts who have come together. are those pr- prostate and breast are those the only two types of cancer no. uh, that that you know where we're having this discussion right now no. any, any other kinds of cancers no
3: we've already uh, very quietly over the past five or six years, and indeed, this is what caused uh, a wider discussion. In uh, bladder cancer, some things that were called bladder cancer in 2003-2004 have been reclassified and renamed. Uh, We know that thyroid cancer, uh, adenocarcinoma of the lung, uh, as well as prostate and breast cancer all have these problems. There's also some problems in some of the things, not all, but some of the things that we've been calling melanoma. Talk more about that, about
0: about the skin, yeah.
3: Well, we're starting to realize that some of these things that look like melanoma actually are not. uh, Think of them as genomically programmed to grow, spread, and uh, cause harm. And uh, we're going to get much better. You know, this is still something in its infancy, and what we're trying to do is come become much better at defining. Uh, what a cancer is. Uh, one way of looking at this is the following. Uh, a couple of German pathologists in the 1850s using autopsies actually define what cancer is. They actually defined the technology for doing a biopsy, uh, what we now call H&E staining. They did this in the 1850s. Uh, and they wrote a book. Uh, actually, I've seen a copy of their original book at the Mayo Clinic, uh, mm-hmm. Profiles in Cancer. Now, 160 years later, uh, after x-ray, mammography, CT, MRI, some biopsy technologies, stereotactic biopsy technologies that are just in the last 10 years, we can biopsy a lesion that's five millimeters in size in a woman's breast, send it to a pathologist who does the same H&E stains the Germans did in the 1850s, looks at it under a 2013 version of the light microscope. The Germans used an 1850s version of a light microscope with a candle. And uh, our pathologist today says this looks just like what the Germans said killed the lady they autopsied 160 years ago. Nowadays, we know that five millimeter lesion may look like a cancer, but it may not be genomically programmed to grow, spread, and metastasize. And what we're moving toward is being able to do a genomic test to give us a 21st century definition of what is cancer and move away from that mid-19th century definition.
0: So are you saying we now have the ability or the technology through these tests to say definitively, this is this is not something that's going to grow or progress or harm you, as you say, uh, you know, what we see here in this person versus what we see perhaps that are also at a very early stage in another person, we know enough to know that that is a cancer that is going to grow, advance, uh, uh, progress. I mean, I think if I'm a, you know, kind of an average Joe listening to the show today, um, I might be a little bit scared about what you're saying to say, whoa, 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 whoa I'd rather, well. you know, if it's something even close to cancer, you know, I want to know that because I want to be, uh, you know, aggressive, so it doesn't turn into something well, really terrible. Well, I would
3: introduce them to some of the people who have been harmed by that aggressive treatment that was probably unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would, uh, I would say that in certain diseases, in prostate cancer, we are much closer to being able to say this is a cancer that we need to watch versus this is a cancer that we need to treat uh, than we are in, say, breast cancer, although in breast cancer we do have some uh, molecular and genomic tests that are starting to allow us to figure out who should be treated more aggressively versus who should be treated less aggressively. Uh, over the next 10 to 15 years, I think our diagnostic abilities to distinguish the benign, though looking like like cancer versus the true cancer is going to improve dramatically
0: so you talk about, you know, uh, saying, look, I'd like to introduce these folks to patients who've been harmed and, and, and you know, overtreated. Um, are you finding patients on the other side who are willing to be monitored and being studied, be well, participate in studies who say, I don't want to be treated well, and I want you to monitor me?
3: Well, it's interesting. In Europe, you find those patients who want to be monitored and not treated much more so than in the United States. In the United States is the exact reverse. We work very hard to make people be frightened. Of cancer over the years. Uh, but let's, let's take the prostate cancer example. If we look at our best science, and we still don't know if screening saves lives, but let's look at the study that tells us that it does. That study that tells us that screening saves lives says that we have to treat 37 men in order to save one life. Now, I also have data to show that for every 200 men that I treat, I actually kill one, that Mm. one man dies as a result of prostate cancer treatment. So, uh, you know, the the math is difficult, but basically for every five lives we save right now, we treat 200 people and we sacrifice one life. Mm-hmm. If I could be able to figure out the one hundred and ninety five men who don 't need to be treated and just zero in on those five lives i 'd be much better and much yeah. happier
0: well and that that you know that that, that science sounds a little more you know, uh, uh, appealing than, the, you know, you, you talk about sort of, you know, we're looking at that down the road and maybe, again, for, uh, you know, for listeners a little more, uh, you know, more appealing um, than perhaps where we are at this moment. But well, I, mean, I think that's the, you know, research and and uh, and, and progress that, uh, you know, that we need to make. I've got a quick in, minute until the break, Dr. Broly. Please
3: go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, the number of men who are being treated for prostate cancer in 2013 is far less than the number who were being treated in 2005. We're already starting to get men to be watched as opposed to get aggressive treatment in low-grade prostate cancer.
0: So, so, the tide, so the tide is already, uh, already turning, and we're seeing some benefit from that. Um, this is, frankly, speaking about cancer. We're talking about the new definition uh, uh, of cancer. We're seeing some changes. There was a significant report that came out this year, and there were perhaps some uh, diagnoses we're calling cancer that don't necessarily need to be called cancer. We're learning about which those are. The, the, the science is advancing so that we can determine that and perhaps not be uh, treating folks who are being treated today uh, unnecessarily. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim teboldo We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
2: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help.
2: Support from cancer survivors. Links to
1: research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you of Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer.
3: Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphitech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities Frankly Speaking About Cancer Series. Morphitech and its parent company, AZI, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
2: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, president and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
0: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're talking about the proposed new definition of cancer with Dr. Otis Brawley, Chief Medical Officer of the American Cancer Society and Professor of Hematology, Oncology, Medicine, and Epidemiology at Emory. In this uh, segment, we will talk more about what this new definition of cancer means for people who may have one of the conditions that will no longer be labeled as cancerous. Obviously, a lot of uh, ramifications to this discussion we're really trying to drill it down today um, and and, and understand that. Um, Dr. Brawley, if I understand correctly, a person may have a positive test or a positive scan, but this doesn't mean uh, that that is, uh, you know, potentially dangerous or going to progress uh, to something. And just back to this question, could not treating, uh, you know, these incidents as as cancer potentially, uh, you know, harm a patient? What uh, if we're not sort of diagnosing these as cancer, treating them as cancer, what additional follow-up monitoring might people expect or, or, or not expect in this new paradigm?
3: Yeah, well, yes, we need to have good good tests that are going to reliably tell us this is a cancer. But it, or it looks like cancer under a microscope, but it is not going to behave like cancer uh, if it is left alone. We need to have good tests in all of these diseases. In the case of breast cancer right now, I would recommend that a woman who's diagnosed with a true breast cancer uh, actually get that breast cancer treated because I have good data to show that while I'm going to cure some women who don't need to be cured, I'm definitely going to cure some women who need it to be cured. I'm going to save some lives by treating that breast cancer. Uh, we don't have as good a marker in breast cancer right now for predicting the ones that don't need to be treated as we do in prostate cancer. Um, so we will, over the next 10 to 15 years, develop those markers. What we do have in breast cancer right now are some genomic tests that allow us to say, this seems benignish. So we're going to treat it, but treat it less aggressively versus this seems aggressive, so we're going to treat it aggressive. And we're already incorporating these genomic tests into our practice of medicine in breast cancer. But breast cancer, I'm not at a point where I can say, ma'am, you have something that looks like breast cancer, but we're going to watch it and not treat it and
0: and what would uh just to enlighten our listeners what would a less aggressive treatment look like versus a more aggressive treatment?
3: Well, when we use tests like Oncotype DX or Mammaprint today, we sometimes will say uh, that you should get uh, tamoxifen for five years, or you should get six months of third-generation adjuvant chemotherapy followed by tamoxifen. So uh, we we allow these genomic tests to decide, is this person going to get six months of chemotherapy or not right now? Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um, can you uh, you talked a little bit in the first segment about um, our uh, you know how we as a society in the U.S. as a culture think about and approach cancer versus uh, you know the uh, the example you used in, in in Europe where there's perhaps a less fearful approach a less aggressive uh, 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 aggressive approach Can you, do you have some theories you know to what do you do you attribute those sort of cultural differences?
3: Well, you know our method of consuming health care, In the United States is also different from the consumption of healthcare in Europe. Uh, Indeed, that's one of the reasons that we're in such a problem right now for healthcare. You know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about is the fact that uh, 18% of our economy is healthcare, and it's on a it's actually growing toward 30% of our economy by 2030. And the question is, can the United States survive with 30% of its economy? being healthcare uh, at a time where if you go to France or Germany, uh, their economies are 8 to 10% being healthcare. Uh, We are basically uh, going to go bankrupt off of healthcare costs in the United States because we overconsume. We look for a pill or a treatment as the solution to every problem. Uh, we operate on people when they should probably go to physical therapy for low back pain. Uh, we uh, have a huge obesity problem, which is contributing to hypertension, diabetes, as well as cancer. Uh, the, the health grades for people in the United States are actually terrible when we compare them to Canada, France, Germany, uh, or uh, Scandinavia. So we're spending a huge
0: amount more, but we are no more healthy.
3: Uh, our death rates are actually worse. Mm-hmm. If not, we're no more healthy. We are worse off. Worse off. Worse off.
0: And, and, and so I think some people, you know, uh, you know, again, listening and, you know, this is a huge sort of psychological shift for people to, uh, uh, you know, to kind of absorb, I think that we do have in the U S this, this sort of, you know, better safe than sorry mentality, um, you know, when, when, when it comes to this. And so, um, and, 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 I also know that we do, we do more mastectomies where they do more lumpectomies in Europe and we have, we have this much more, uh, you know, aggressive approach, but, but, but are you sort of saying through this study, through this report, that the science is saying that we need to move away from that better safe than sorry mentality because you're not safer through the aggressive treatment and may, in fact, be less safe by taking a more aggressive approach?
3: In the United States, especially when it comes to screening, we have took a view that finding cancer and treating it is always the thing to do. Uh, in Europe, as well as in Canada, uh, they have actually taken approaches much more towards let's do things that prevent illness, not just cancer, but other illnesses, and let's incorporate into our medical system prevention of illness. Uh, and in the United States, we have incorporated find that people are sick as opposed to prevent them from getting sick. And then in the United States, we tend to have this treat, treat, treat Philosophy, where more is better, and the reality is sometimes more is better, but very often doing less is better
0: and are there um, are there measures in the Affordable Care Act that do shift more of a focus on prevention and preventative care?
3: Yeah, where the Affordable Care Act, if it is ever fully implemented, may actually help us dramatically is, uh, for example, I was just on service at the hospital. We, every week, have somebody who comes in because they passed out uh, due to anemia. They, they're brought to the emergency room because they passed out. It turns out that person has a colon cancer. Uh, if that person had been in a colon cancer, colon cancer happens to be the disease where screening works the best and people in the United States do it the least, by the way. Uh, if that person had been insured and had been in some type of medical system that offered surveillance for colon cancer is everyone should get over the age of 50. We might have found their colon cancer when it was a polyp and not even a cancer or when it was an early stage cancer as opposed to when it is an advanced cancer. Now society is going to pay for that person's surgery and for that person's chemotherapy and that person is very likely still not to do well. The Affordable Care Act might might actually prevent that sort of thing the Affordable Care Act also uh, will get people to doctors where they can talk about diet weight and exercise and they may prevent some cardiovascular disease some diabetes and some cancer many people don't realize that over the next 10 to 15 years diet and obesity is going to be a bigger cause of cancer in the United States than tobacco usage mm.
0: It's a stunning stunning
3: statistics
0: um, uh, dr Roley we 've got two or three minutes left here till our uh, uh, until our break, but can you take a minute to address um, your your thoughts around the behavior change that 's going to need to happen both on the part of the consumer patient and on the part of the uh, the physician yes. as uh, this new
3: definition sort of emerges sure, sure, well, first. I think all of us are going to have to start accepting the science and the research that we actually always support. You know, there's tremendous support in the United States for research. Well, research is actually telling us that we need to actually evolve our definition of cancer from this mid-19th century definition into a 21st century definition that incorporates not just what a biopsy looks like under a microscope, but also what the genome tells us, what the ge- how the genes are working together. That's, that's genomic medicine. Uh, then I also think that all of us, doctors and patients, In the United States need to start seriously concentrating on what we can do to prevent disease as opposed to this mindset that we've been in to find out that people are sick early on so we can intervene let's let's go go even before they get sick and try to keep them from getting sick I think that type of mindset is what is the only thing that's going to save our economy at some point because as I said earlier we are moving toward a a third of our economy being healthcare care costs.
0: It's, it really is, is stunning to think about compared to, compared to other, other uh, countries. But uh, so, again, as these new definitions emerge, will these changes impact the way in which diagnostic tests will be used and or paid for?
3: I do think that these, uh, there will be some impact on how diagnostic tests are going to be paid for. We're actually going to have uh, some more diagnostic tests that in the short term will actually be more expensive. Uh, some of these genomic tests that we uh, are, are talking about are actually going to cost more money, but it's actually going to eventually save us. You know, there, there are some guys who have prostate cancer, who literally today get 250 to 300,000 dollars in treatment in one year, and if they were to go down the street to another hospital and see an enlightened pathologist, they would be told you have low-grade low stage prostate cancer, mm-hmm. and you would be much better off physically not just not just in terms of cost you'd be much better physically to be watched for that cancer got it,
0: got it. This is frankly speaking about cancer We're, we we are talking about the the, the new definition of cancer. <laughs> That is emerging as a result of a significant uh, 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 report that uh, that came out this year. There were some uh, early stage cancers that uh, we are moving into a new definition where they very well may not be uh, called cancer or categorized as cancer. We have Dr. Otis Brawley with us from the American Cancer Society. We're going to take a quick break right now, and we will be right back.
2: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple
3: iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, cancer support community is proud to support Meal sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific Meal Trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MagnoliaB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com.
0: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, and today we're here with Dr. Otis Brawley, Chief Medical Officer of the American Cancer Society, talking about the new definition of cancer. We talked about what this will mean for, for people facing uh, a, a new diagnosis, and I, I, yeah, I really want to drill down on some of the specifics around what types of cancers we are talking about and really what this will mean for the rest of the oncology uh, community. We did uh, talk, Dr. Brawley, at length about uh, about prostate uh, cancer, and you have... You had reference to that, uh, that is where we are you know, making the most progress on um, uh, sort of implementing this new definition of cancer and really tr- changing the diagnostic and treatment paradigm in prostate cancer. Could we talk for a moment or two about breast, about early-stage breast cancer, uh, maybe uh, explain to our folks what DCIS is and, and uh, give us some context there and where we are in the breast cancer conversation?
3: Yeah, ductal carcinoma in situ is something that was never diagnosed prior to 1970 and it was with with the advent of widespread mammography screening, that ductal carcinoma in situ started being diagnosed. Now, when I went to medical school in the 1980s, even we were taught that ductal carcinoma in situ is not a real cancer; it is a something that looks like cancer that's confined. Uh, and the, the in situ we were even taught was sort of like ductal carcinoma, not. And uh, now, over the years, because it has the name carcinoma in it, Mm -hmm. doctors and patients and patient advocacy groups became a little loose with their use of the nomenclature we have for pathology. And now most people think of DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, as cancer. And uh, uh, it was easy to think of it as cancer because in the 1980s, the treatment for uh, ductal carcinoma in situ was a mastectomy. Uh, and in the 1990s, we would actually do a lumpectomy or offer a lumpectomy and radiation to mm-hmm. someone who had frank, real cancer, invasive cancer, and recommend a mastectomy for someone who had ductal carcinoma in situ. Now we treat ductal carcinoma in situ usually. Uh, we prefer lumpectomy and radiation, although a large number of women are now doing bilateral mastectomy for ductal carcinoma in situ. We've actually learned that a bunch of ductal carcinoma in situ never will progress Never will become cancer. It's not even a precancerous condition. It is just an abnormal pathology. And we need to actually move toward being able to figure out the DCISs that need to be treated, the DCISs that need to be watched, and possibly even the DCISs that need to be, uh, quite frankly, uh, almost ignored. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And what is the what is just quickly, if you can explain the science that would need to happen to to get to those definitions to most, understand that? Most,
3: most of our science in helping us predict biologic behavior of these tissues—those that appear cancerous and those that are like DCIS—are going to involve genomics. Genomics is looking at not one gene but a series of genes, sometimes two dozen genes, and figuring out which gene is turned on, which gene is turned off, and then you look at your combinations among the two dozen genes, and you can say, aha, things that look like cancer with this genomic pattern tends to be an aggressive cancer. Things that look like cancer with this genomic pattern tends to be not aggressive, and that's how we're going to figure out the people who we need to treat versus the people who we need to apologize for telling them that they have this thing that looks like cancer, and then tell them we're going to watch. You just to make sure we're right
0: so that so that brings me I think to an important question obviously in the context of this conversation uh you know in my mind I've sort of been thinking about people who you know have not yet been diagnosed and maybe screened and, and, and diagnosed with some of these abnormalities that we're talking about but what would this proposed new definition of cancer have uh, you know what kind of impact would it have with people who are already living with cancer
3: well, you know, um, that's a really good point, and actually I've had a interesting series of conversations with a urologist who's concerned that uh, there's a group of people who want to say that Gleason 6 uh, prostate cancer is not cancer, and he said, do you really want to tell 48% of the men who've been treated for prostate cancer over the last 50 years that a committee has now decided that they didn't really have cancer? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I think in America that would be called a lawsuit waiting to happen.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, uh, you know... um... There, in prostate cancer has been a special problem because there's been a lot of people pushing prostate screening, uh, even before we had a study that even suggested that prostate cancer screening saved lives. You know, for 20 years, uh, prostate cancer screening was done and there was no scientific proof of benefit. Now we have uh, two studies that suggest there might be a benefit, but those studies are still being widely disputed.
0: So, Dr. Brawley, how does, so this is a report, this is a recommendation, how does a change like this begin to get implemented?
3: Well, uh, in the case of bladder cancer, some of the bladder cancers that were changed, uh, the uh, reports were published uh, by the National Cancer Institute. And uh, pathologists uh, and pathology organizations started endorsing those reports, and the pathologists who are members of those organizations started using the new nomenclature. Uh, That was also true uh, in uh, a cervical cancer screening with the Bethesda system, uh, where we've already in cervical cancer downgraded a bunch of things that used to be called precancerous and should be treated to not necessarily precancerous these should be watched uh, and in, in the case of uh, cervical cancer screening uh, literally half of women who used to get cervical colonization which is a surgery to prevent cervical cancer a surgery by the way which caused uh, cervical incontinence and frequently caused miscarriages later on about mm. half of those operations uh, are unnecessary now we just watch the lesions and the lesions eventually disappear
0: Do you think that I mean? I think that you know. Certainly, we know in our medical community, and perhaps this is why the costs are so high. That we you know we err on the side of uh, of caution certainly um, in in making some of these uh, some of these decisions. It's just it's interesting for me to sort of think about the 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 practical uh, process of of getting this implemented. Does the doctor Mm -hmm. does the doctor now say to you, Well, yesterday we would have called this cancer, but today we're not going to call it cancer, so we're not going to we're not going to treat you for this, but it used to be called cancer. Or, you know, does the doctor, and, and you know, in, in your conversations with your patients, is that the conversation that you have through this transition period? Or is the conversation, no, it's not cancer. We're going to monitor it. We're going to keep an eye on things. But no, you don't have cancer.
3: I would, um, I actually do think we should tell the patients uh, uh, that, this is what used to be called cancer, but science has advanced, and we now realize that it is uh, not something that is a threat to your health, or that it is a low risk of something that's a threat to your health. And this is something that should be watched. Uh, I think we also need to talk a little bit more about the harms that we cause uh, with screening and treatment. You know, I already told you about prostate cancer screening, yep. uh, you know, the lung cancer screening study that everybody rejoices about actually shows that for every 5.4 people that you save from lung cancer, you actually put two people into an inc- intensive care unit and one person ultimately dies. Uh, mm-hmm. It also shows that for every thousand people that you screen, uh, 25%, 250, are going to get called back for a additional testing, and some of those additional tests are going to be things like needle biopsies of the lung, which can cause collapsed lungs and heart attacks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we need to be careful of our tendency to want to intervene, and we need to intervene when it's appropriate and mm-hmm. not intervene when not intervening is appropriate. In the United States, we tend to be too aggressive.
0: Do you think that what happens with the patient who says, uh, "Great, Dr. Brawley, good for you for the new definition. I want you to treat me, you know, under the old paradigm, as if it were cancer. Um, I don't want to take any chances. I don't want to take any risk. Are we going to get to a point where the insurance company's not going to pay for that? Or are we
3: going to I, get to?" Uh, well, we're, this is somewhat of a political statement on my point. Yeah. I think the insurance company should not pay for that. And I think that uh, if that patient wants to find a doctor who will treat them, that's fine and good, and that patient mm-hmm. should pay for it. And it would be between that patient and that doctor. Mm-hmm. I would not treat that patient. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would hope the insurance company wouldn't pay, uh, pay for it. But if the patient wanted treatment, uh, I think the patient should be free to get it, but they should pay for it themselves. Pay for it themselves. Or uh, in some, in- if they wanted to establish some insurance where they paid higher premiums because they got this sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. Uh, we've only got a minute or two until our break here, Dr. Brawley. But generally, can you tell us how have how, you know how, how has the physician community responded to to, uh, to this report, to these announcements? Is there pushback? Is there acceptance? Are we sort of across the spectrum on that right now? Well, in the academic
3: community, uh, in most of the academic community, there's been tremendous acceptance, and there's been the feeling for a long time that there's been significant overtreatment. There's also the understanding on all of our parts that this is where science is going. You know, I, I started early on by telling you that even though I believe that 20% of women who have localized breast cancer uh, will be treated needlessly and cured needlessly, at this juncture, the state of the sciences, I would recommend that they all get treated. Uh, 10 years from now, I'm hoping that we're going to have uh, a test that's going to allow me to decide what 20% don't need to be treated and need to be watched. So all of us are uh, looking at this, uh, I think... Uh, uh, somewhat happy that we're advancing this. We're actually going to spare some people uh, the harms associated with treatment, uh, but we have to be cautious as we move forth, and we have to clearly explain what, what it is we know, what we don't know, and what we believe.
0: It really, it really bumps the, uh, the physician-patient dialogue to a whole new level, doesn't it? I mean, you're going to need to take more time uh, with your patients, it seems, as we just get to our break here.
3: Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, and, you know, doctors don't get paid to talk to patients, which is really, really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, we're with you. We're, we're with you on that. We agree that uh, that, uh, that, that uh, time that physicians are dedicating to these kinds of conversations needs to be, you know, that's what needs to be paid for and reimbursed by the insurance companies. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking about the new definition of cancer with Dr. Otis Brawley. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back.
2: Have you friended us on Facebook yet? why not just go to facebook.com forward slash world talk radio or search for the keywords world talk radio once you're a part of our facebook network you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows this week's featured guests and new happenings at the world talk radio network and you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline just go to facebook.com forward slash world talk radio or search for world talk radio A global network of education and hope.
1: Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help.
2: Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials.
1: Help with finances and access to care. All behind you Break away from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance, and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but nine out of ten pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362.
2: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
0: Welcome back. I'm Kim Tebaldo and this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Our show today is sponsored in part by McKesson's giving comfort program, Bristol-Myers Squibb and Morphotech. We have been talking with the American Cancer Society Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Otis Brawley, today on the proposed new definition of cancer, which would cause certain diagnoses to no longer be labeled as cancer. Um, Dr. Brawley, I want to... uh, Obviously, the American Cancer Society is very well known for its cancer facts and figures and the statistics that you publish uh, on which we all rely. How will this new definition impact how we are reporting on incidence prevalence uh, of cancer, it seems to me that it could be a dramatic shift and and, and, uh, perhaps, you know, a a, uh, a drop in how we're uh, sort of reporting incident rates in cancer. But, you know, how how do we sort of accurately reflect that footnote?
3: Yeah, very interesting question. It's going to complicate things dramatically because what we're starting to realize is, you know, we report nowadays breast cancer. Well, already with molecular markers, uh, the doctor in the community practice knows that there's at least seven different kinds of breast cancer. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're probably, probably in the next three, four years going to be able to say that there are 80 to 100 different kinds of breast cancer. We're going to have to continue reporting breast cancer. Now, the numbers that still will be very important is how many people die from a particular disease. Also in uh, lung cancer, by the way, uh, for the last 20 years, we've been teaching that there are five different kinds of lung cancer. We're going to learn that there are far more than five different kinds of lung cancer, and we're going to learn to predict the biologic behavior, which ones grow fast, which ones grow slow, which ones don't grow at all. Mhm
0: mhm-, mhm- so yeah, i I mean, I agree with you. it is going to sort of complicate how we're tracking and 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 reporting these numbers, and I think that the other challenging piece you know, as you sort of discussed um it's not as if there's a change made at a point in time, and here's the new definition. And it's universally accepted, so the footnote shows, you know, on X date, this was the new definition. That's going to be, you know, it is going to be, the waters are going to be a bit, uh, a bit muddied, wouldn't you say, on how we sort of monitor this over time?
3: Oh, absolutely. The waters will be muddied. Um, now, there are some things that we're already doing. For example, uh, we no longer call ductal carcinoma in situ breast cancer, ductal carcinoma in situ of the breast we categorize as ductal carcinoma of uh, in situ of the breast separate from breast cancer now we do lump together lobular and ductal carcinomas as breast cancer
0: so you're saying DCIS is now not counted as a breast cancer in your statistics that's right okay. that's right we've
3: gone in many respects we've gone back to the 1980s yeah uh, when pathologists did not consider ductal carcinoma in site breast cancer, they considered it a preneoplastic condition like cervical dysplasia
0: so it's uh it's uh, it 's one step back to take two steps forward <laughs> that 's right that
3: 's a good way of putting it.
0: as opposed to the reverse. Um, uh, Dr. Brawley, can you talk for a moment about, uh, as we move to the end of our show here, can you talk for uh, a moment or two about the American Cancer Society's role in this journey to change the cancer definition? How have you been involved? What are you doing to educate folks about this
3: and have a central role here? Yeah, well, the first way that it was discovered, that there are these cancers that don't really need to be treated was actually in looking at the numbers. What you have in the case of um, several different cancers is dramatic increasing rates of diagnosis of the disease with small declines in mortality from the disease. And uh, these are ACS numbers from ACS facts and figures and stuff that we do in collaboration with the epidemiologists at the National Cancer Institute. And we could actually uh, uh, figure out uh, over the last 20 years, for example, in uh, prostate cancer, there's well over a million men who were diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, who did incredibly well, so well, that we start realizing that they didn't have a disease that was ever going to bother them you know but they a million men were diagnosed and treated you know from 1990 through about 2010 and uh uh and so we were one of the folks who actually helped to figure out this trend. Mm-hmm. A lot of our basic scientists, uh, who are, some of whom are funded at universities around the, the country by the American Cancer Society, the Department of Defense, and the National Cancer Institute, those are the folks who are actually starting to figure out these genomic tests that help us to predict the behavior. So the American Cancer Society was funding some, but not all of that. And then, uh, uh, the first meeting that the National Cancer Institute had when they called together a group of about 80 individuals to talk about this, uh, uh, this renaming certain things was held about four years ago. It was actually held at the American Cancer Society headquarters in Atlanta. Now, uh, as that group has continued on doing its work, it's that those meetings have been held around the country, most commonly in Bethesda, the National Cancer. Cancer Institute but uh, the meeting is uh, uh, the meetings have been partly sponsored by the American Cancer Society but with other folks sponsoring them as well mm-hmm
0: mhm mm-hmm. um, as we get to our uh, to the to the finish of our show here which I'm a little bit sad about because this is such a such a great conversation Dr. Broly, do you think that you know we've talked a lot about prostate cancer we talked a lot about breast cancer is is this going to be a, a you know a bit of a rolling process by tumor type by body part or you know is the obviously we have a lot of you know scientific research in specific areas of cancer we've got professional societies in different areas of cancer are we going to see changes and progress over time sort of tumor type by tumor type?
3: Yeah, it's going to be tumor type by tumor type. You know, the ones that people have focused on the most are prostate cancer because we have the best predictors of what we should not be treating right now. Breast cancer because of the high numbers. Adenocarcinoma of the lung has come out uh, as an important cancer because uh, screening studies recently have shown us uh, that there might be some uh, overdiagnosis. Thyroid cancer is in the mix, uh, but we're going to see it... Cervical cancer and bladder cancer, we've already changed the names and really nobody even winced. Uh, but we're going to be looking at endometrial cancer and a few other things. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting, the one cancer where we don't seem to have a lot of overdiagnosis of the cancer itself is uh, colon cancer. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Why is that? I don't know. Uh, okay. Interesting question for research. Yeah. Interesting yeah, sure. question for research.
0: For sure, for sure. Um, and maybe that opens up the door for us to have you back onto the show.
3: <laughs> the, oh, I'd love uh, to.
0: As the science unfolds, I, I really do want to thank you uh, so much, Dr. Broly, for a great show today, for explaining to us what this new proposed uh, definition of cancer will mean for the future of medicine. Um, we, we do look forward to seeing how this will play out and, and, and change uh, the way we see a diagnosis. So uh, I hope you will come back and join us again. Oh, as I'd unfolds. love to. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, uh, uh, thanks for joining us, folks, uh, for Frankly Speaking About Cancer today. Uh, I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the uh, Cancer Support Community. The Cancer Support Community uh, provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support uh, centers all over the country. We have a helpline, a very vibrant online community. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to face cancer alone. Uh, for more information about our programs, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org to find one of our centers near you or uh, call in anytime time to our toll-free helpline at 888-793-9355. You can speak to a trained, uh, licensed counselor who can help you with any of the issues that you're confronting in uh, a cancer diagnosis, whatever type of cancer, whatever stage of illness, and, and, uh, and we also provide all of these services for the caregivers and loved ones of people with cancer. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, be well, do well,